Okay, let's look at uh, some history here. For a lot of us, let's admit, admit it, you come to the early church and it's sort of like, imagine people who with American history, they sort of think, well, maybe this is where Franklin Roosevelt meets Robert E. Lee or something. You know, they're just all these people sort of hanging out in the early church. And actually, the first five centuries um, are very distinct and it's pretty easy to master them if you know basically here's what happens. Just as, you know, with American, you have the Revolutionary War, you go by that and you can figure this out. So we're going to go through the first five centuries of the church, the early church. So let's start first of all, is we might give a title to each one of these. Uh, the first century, I call it spreading the good news. The gospel extends throughout the whole empire. So that's really what happens. It's amazing how fast the gospel spreads. You know, there's, there are people everywhere who've heard the gospel in the first century. In the second century, I call it making our case is now a lot of people everywhere hearing about Christianity and they're asking questions or challenging it, you know, and people are having, we're making our case for the faith. So, okay, I think what happened here is you're not having this here. I think I tried some of these new things. Did that not print out? It did. It did. Some of the things, I tried some of these new things you could do with slides and I think they weren't always the best for printing. Okay, the third, but you're so excited by the, the graphics here, right? The third is the age of Persia called the Empire Strikes Back is this is where the empire looks upon this as being, whoa, we'll talk about why. This is a problem. In the fourth century, we have dawn of a new day, the beginning of the Christian empire. You know, from an attack, actually, the, the empire embraces Christianity. It's a, you know, 180-degree turn. And we'll explain why that happens. And in the fifth century, uncharted territory, the church has to cope with the fall of the Western empire. The world as we know it comes to an end. You know, it really was really very traumatic for Romans. It was hard to imagine. So what's the special importance of this period? Why do we especially care about this period as Anglicans? Well, there's a guy we'll talk about later in another context called uh, Vincent of Lorraine, or Larens, I suppose. It's a little, um, it's an island off the coast of Marseille in the south of, of France. And what's interesting about him is he said, he's so Anglican. He said, what, where do we find the truth? Where do we find the absolute standard of our faith and that has everything necessary for salvation. He says, the scriptures. That's a very Anglican response. But some heretics were saying, yeah, we agree in the scriptures too, but this is not how we read them. And they come up with some really far-fetched, like Gnostic interpretations of the scripture. And he says, what do we do when people disagree about interpretation? And he says, well, we look at what, how has the church read the Bible together? What has always been believed by everybody, always, and every, by, everywhere, always by everyone? Semper ubique ab omnibus in always, everywhere, by everyone. So his basic point is the, the Bible is a book we read, and we've maintained this at the Reformation. We certainly believe in sola scriptura, but that doesn't mean private interpretation, like everybody that sits with their Bible ignores every, you know, you know, God is the first one who spoke to me in you know, 2,000 years, I have the right answer. You know, the Bible has a real meaning. We can know what that is. So, uh, so, so why is that important? What, how do we define everywhere, always, by everyone? And we talk about the faith of the undivided church. And here's how we define it. For one of our great theologians was a man named Lancelot Andrews, amazing guy, and he wrote some wonderful prayer. His personal prayer book's fabulous. I really recommend it to you. Prayers he read every day. And he put, you know, what do we believe in? What's the faith of the undivided church? He has the one canon reduced to writing by God. We believe in the Bible, both testaments. We believe in the three creeds as being a true explanation of what they simply, they simply summarize what the Bible says. It doesn't add anything. It simply summarizes how we read the Bible. And then he says we believe in the four general councils. Those are the, the councils that take place in the first five centuries. And the series of fathers in that five centuries and the series of fathers in that same period. 
Now, so this is the faith of the undivided church. So this is Anglicans we look back at, the Reformation we look back. You know, where did, where could we find agreement? Of course on the scriptures, but when people disagreed on the scriptures, how could we figure that, what, what was the, the faith of the undivided church? And by the way, this doesn't mean there can't be development. He said it's like this, I love Vincent. He says, are we saying that we can't get a deeper understanding? Of course we can, I hope we would. But he said, here's like it. He said, we're, it's like a baby's a born. A baby's going to grow up. He's going to get, you know, his limbs will develop. You know, he grows into a full woman, a full man, right? He's, the baby's not going to look the same. And so why we expect that? We expect to have a greater and better understanding at times. But what we're not going to expect is the baby starts out with two arms is going to have six. You know, a baby with one head isn't going to have two. Is everything that we develop is already there. There's nothing brand new that comes into the equation. We can understand the faith better, but we can't add to it. You know, everything there is already in, you know, a little girl, little boy, everything's already there they'll meet as a full woman and a full man. The whole genetic, everything's there. We can't have some, oh, God didn't mention this. Like the Holy Spirit now in the 21st century is leading us into a new place. I've heard that like some with homosexuality and like, you know, that was another time. But now the Holy Spirit's changed his mind. You know, we're now, this is, no, it doesn't work that way. Everything there is, okay. So that's why we have a particular interest. So let's talk about our history. This is our family story. Uh, called Spreading the Good News, the Gospel Spread Throughout the Empire. Now, one thing that the church loved looking back on this uh, for, you know, for the first thousand years is to say it was a miracle that everything came into place. It's like all the stars coming into configuration to allow, you know, why would Christ come into the world now? Well, everything was in place in a unique way. The first thing we have is something called the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. You understand in the ancient world, War is something, you didn't have wars, they occurred constantly. The ancient world was more like warlords. People were always fighting it out. And so the idea, and it was never safe to travel long distances. You crossed out of your safe zone or your protection. You know, the world was a very narrow place. With the Romans, something had never happened in the West. We suddenly had the entire Mediterranean basin actually had law and order. This had never happened. You could actually travel in things, you know, safely. There weren't constant wars in the empire. There were always things on the, on the edges and things. But in the empire, for the first time in history, and this happened, uh, you know, the, the, it comes under, uh, under Augustus. Judea comes within the empire in 63 BC. So basically, for the first time, we're talking about spreading the faith. And that's, that's why it's so slow to go to other places like Persia. And we'll send people out there. But you have all this, you know, we don't have this kind of order. We have this incredible order. It'll be for a 200-year period. We'll have this period of incredible order that will allow the church to spread. And the next thing that's going to help us is the, the gift. You know, the Jews, one of their great missions from God was to, you know, was to be a blessing to the nations. And boy, were they, because Jews traveled everywhere. Uh, they were engaged in commerce and trade and things. And so when we look at the Acts of the Apostles, everywhere Paul went, he could find Jews. And that's a place where you get a startup, a jumping-off point for proclaiming the gospel to everybody. You look, where do Jews be? You normally go to the synagogue. You don't have a synagogue. Jews always had to go to a river. They had to have living water to get ready for prayer. That's why the one place he said, where, where do I find Jews? Well, you go to the river. On the Sabbath, you have to wash in living water, moving water. And so that means you'd always find Jews at the closest river, closest stream. <laughs> so he went on the Sabbath. Uh, you know, so we have Jews who, who are already starting. People knew about them. They knew something. They were intrigued you know, about this. So they were sort of preparing the, the, the way for the Gentiles. Another thing, and also they had a special legal status. You see, here's how the Romans looked at religion, one of the things. Religion is something you get from your parents and from your country. It's, you know, it's not a personal thing. No one looked upon religion as being a personal thing. It was, it was part of who you were, like the language you speak. It's who you are. 
So the Romans thought it was only logical that people like the Jews, they might have a strange religion as the Romans looked at it, but you know, they said, well, that's normal. They do things like they learn from their parents. So Jews, they knew they have the strange thing. They have only one God. There are so many. They only have this one, but they could only worship him. So they said, well, we can live with that because they're Jews. That's their custom. They're being, they're being faithful to their ancestors. So they were given a special legal exemption. They never had to worship the emperor. They had to do anything that was against their religion because Romans deeply admired people who were faithful to their past. Actually, they thought in Latin that the word religio, it doesn't mean that they were mistaken, but they thought it meant bound. It came from the word uh, you know, to bind. They thought it, it came from being, you know, you're tied to the past. So it's like this in America. It's hard for you because you're so young. But I remember when, when conscientious objection was considered a freakish thing and wrong and cowardly and bad. Um, if you've ever seen, for example, that, that, that movie came out, you know, Hacksaw Ridge, is really, I think, powerful about you know, someone who came. However, even in those times, people realized that because Americans, we said, wait a second, you know, for good, regular American boys, they need to get out there and fight. But we honor the fact that part of America is that these people in, who were raised as Quakers and as Mennonites and things, this is the, they didn't make this up. They didn't decide, you know, this is what they're, they're honoring their tradition. So we always looked at them differently. Oh, they were, they're honoring their tradition. Now you try a trick like that. You say, well, I'm an Anglican, but I don't think the just war, you're going to be in prison saying there's no reason for you to get into this stuff. But they were raised that way. So that idea of raised that way. Make sense to you? So Jews had a special legal status in the empire. Also, let me tell you something about Roman religion and what happens now. Roman religion is nothing like our religion is. Here's why, because we think the word religion means it's all it just change the names and have, you know, it's not like that at all. First of all, we think of God, the truth about God is he's amazing, I mean, he creates everything, he's pure goodness, pure light, everything good. That's not how gods work. Gods are just like one level above us. Actually, people can grow up and graduate and become gods. That's called, you know, they, the emperors could be, grow up. So they were like just a higher level, you know, people. And so, the, and they were not at all associated with purity <laughs> or any th good, good things. They were like us. They're good ones or bad ones. Okay. And the Roman view to religion is they were sort of like gangsters. And here's what I mean. It's like a mob in your neighborhood. If you ever see like the movie The Godfather and things, what happens when the mob is in your neighborhood? There's a few things. First of all, they're trouble. The best thing is you placate them. When they come to your store, you always treat them with respect. They're on the sidewalk, you walk out, you, you, you let them pass. They come into your shop, they don't pay when they have lunch. You know, oh, this is on me. You know, so there's basic honor. And also, you probably have protection money. You know, there's protection money, you have to pay money every month, you know, to the mob and sort of a tax. However, on the other hand, it's their duty to protect you, and they do. If somebody from another mob comes in, you know, come, another family comes in, they, they're, that's part of sort of the deal. So the Romans looked at their gods, not like we do with love and affection. No, the, the gods were best kept at a distance, and you're basically paying them off. And also, they'll, they'll, they'll come out for you. Okay. So this was, no one looked to the Roman religion for spiritual things. It was a practical fact of life. You just live in the neighborhood, they're always there. That's a fact. We live in a mob neighborhood. This is how everybody lives in a mob neighborhood. Okay, here's our particular mob. Okay. So people were starting in this time, about the time of Jesus. They wanted more. They were looking for more spiritual things. And answer like meaning of life. That's not something Roman religion gave you. It was not at all that way. Actually, Romans traditionally and Greeks, when they wanted something about how do I live, what does life mean, they looked to philosophy, not religion. Religion is making things that God doesn't get mad at you and do bad things. Oh, you know, it's basically keeping them at a distance or something. He's even getting their help. 
Uh, but that would be like in the Godfather. He says, well, so, you know, okay, but someday I may, may ask you a service. You know, it's something smart people stay away from. Playing around with the gods is really tricky. Okay, so people looked for philosophy, but people were really getting into this. People really felt that they wanted something more in life besides, you know, traditional stuff wasn't working for them. And that's why a lot of Romans were, and Greeks were attracted to Judaism. They really loved the purity of well, the truth about God, this pure, this creator. This was nothing like the gods were going around doing unspeakable things, you know. Just, you know these were people, wow, God, you're this it, beautiful. And it tied with some of the highest ideals of philosophy, like Plato. People loved this. But there was one trouble with being a Jew. Two things. One thing is, if you became a Jew, Ever, Gentiles were impure. It meant you could never, you never go in the house of the Gentiles. So it means you could never visit your own family if you converted. You could never go into their house for holidays. You couldn't, uh, not to mention you had funny uh, food laws. Um, you had to be circumcised if you were a guy. And again, in the ancient world, this wasn't like boxers or briefs. In a world filled with nudity as a regular thing, public baths and things, people would know. And the Romans thought it was creepy. You know, they thought it was, they thought it assumed it was some sort of sexual perversion, that they were, you know, making adjustments to enhance, you know, so it was not a, it was, there's a lot of downside. So what people did, this is why we have these devout people. Why don't they convert? If they convert, they have to cut themselves off from the rest of the Roman world. So what they do is they come and worship the true God at synagogue and things, but they wouldn't actually convert. They wouldn't formally, that's who the devout, when you ever see these devout people, that's who the devout people are. There are people who aren't Jews, a proselyte is someone who actually converts. They actually go the full way and become a Jew. And that's the real thing, by the way. Jews honor converts. In the sense, traditionally, matter of fact, in the, in the Talmud, you can't mention the fact someone converted. It's prohibited. You can never say, oh, they're a convert. You know, okay. Then we have neo-paganism. Now, here's what people tried to do. They're saying, wait, maybe we could combine all the stuff we love with philosophy. And, 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 and educated people didn't believe any of this stuff. They were, but they were beautiful old stories. And so they said, maybe we could take these stories and give them a special metaphorical meaning, turn them into allegories for virtue and vice. And that was what neo-paganism, what they tried to do is go back to the myths and say, oh, this isn't about these people up there, what it's about, who knows. It's really about, this is a symbol of justice getting against law. You know, they, they would turn this all into like a giant allegory. That's neo-paganism. And finally, the mystery cults. Some people really got into this stuff. They'd have these special cults from the East that you'd have that have all these rituals and secrets, secret ceremonies and things. But everyone was looking for something more. Basically, no one was happy. You know, you know, maybe when you don't have to worry about people killing you every other day, you have time to worry about this stuff. You know, so, you know, but basically people are, this is, so they're really open. And another thing we have is language is a deep problem in the ancient world. Because people spoke all sorts, and even, there were no standard languages in the sense, even if you spoke Latin, the Latin you spoke here was not the same as Latin, you know, it was really hard. Hi. Okay. And so what happens here is the Greek begins to spread as a common language. And this is amazing. It's never happened throughout, including Rome. Instead of Latin, it's Greek, because the Romans really respect Greek, Greek culture. And so they all learn Greek, and they learn it well because they're actually all educated Romans are raised with, with uh, from their earliest childhood, speaking Greek with a tutor and things. So they speak Greek, per like Russians later on in the 19th century, all spoke French perfectly, the Russian nobility, because they were raised by French wet nurses and nannies. 
speaking only French, so they could speak perfect French. They spoke flawless French. You read the record, it's the real thing. Okay, so they, but for the first time, you could really get around the empire anywhere in these cities. It's like English is now. And this is a change in my lifetime. When I was young and would travel abroad and things, you know, my preference would be to speak French. You know, that would be one of the things you'd have. You, you see which language. And now, there, you, know, you could always, in some places you have places where people would know French as tours and things, they're off the bat, but other people wouldn't know English. That's never happens ever anymore. Everywhere I go, people speak English. When I ask, can I speak French? You know, sometimes they'll have two where people can do it. Most times they don't. It's, in my lifetime, it's changed. It used to be, well, you know, you had an equal chance in some places, you know, in, in Europe, you know, but now it's, it's incredibly helpful. Anywhere you go, you can find someone who speaks English. That's what happened with Greek. And so it's going to allow people to really get the word out of the gospel. You get the word out. Because finally, for this, this never happened before. You can speak a language that everybody speaks. I mean, all the people who are involved with, you know, in cities and things. Anyone who's involved in trade and commerce and things knows Greek. Also, one thing I should tell a background. Remember, there are two basic religious groups that are rivaling within Judaism at this time. Uh, one of them, the Pharisees, the word Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word to separate. And the idea is they wanted to separate themselves from impurity and from the nations. That's why they make such a big deal about we're not, you know, cutting off, making no boundary lines. Here's, you know, we need to preserve the purity of the Jewish faith. So they were, they were literally the ones who were cut off, who were separated from everything impure, everything Gentile. Okay. They ran the synagogues. Okay. And the other were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were not at all this way. The Sadducees were the priestly class. They ran the temple and they were sort of rivals. You know, the synagogue and temple sort of, you know, most people went, went to both, but they were sort of a professionally rivalry here. And actually, they often identify with Greek culture and things. The Sadducees were a pretty mixed bag. Okay. <laughs> so those are the two groups. The Sadducees were, the, were basically the, all involved the temple, temple worship and things and the priestly families. And the Pharisees, the ones who ran the synagogues and things, and the ones people really looked up to and things. Okay, the initial spread of the gospel is we initially, you know, we have Jerusalem, and it's actually the persecution at the death of Stephen after his martyrdom, is that's what first gets the church out of Jerusalem. It goes to Samaria, is the very first place it goes. Then it goes to the coast. It basically goes to Phoenicia, which is the coast of, of the Holy Land. You know, it's the coastland there in the Holy Land. It goes a little north on that coast is Antioch. And then the first island out is Cyprus. So it goes to Cyprus. Okay. Then what happens, we have Paul's missionary journeys, right? Let me tell you something about the land we call Turkey today. There were no Turks there for another thousand years. They come in the 11th century. I want you to understand that all of Western, what we call Western Turkey, the whole Western part, was Greek. It was, it was as Greek as Greece. Matter of fact, all the pre-Socratic philosophers come from, you know, from a land called Ionia. It's the far west coast there. It's called Ionia. It's as Greek as Greek could be. Matter of fact, we still had Greeks there until 1923 with, when the ethnic cleansing came. There were still Greeks who had lived there for thousands of years who, with the ethnic cleansing in 1923, had to leave. They moved every single Greek from the Turkey had to go. Okay, so the, I want you to understand it's primarily Greek, so it's, it's not at all foreign. It's very European. There's no real difference at all between this. Okay, and then this, in the center we have Celtic peoples who ironically are very close to the peoples of France who at that time were Celtic before the Germanic invasions. Uh, actually, they call the, they, uh, the name actually is connected with the same name as you know, the Gallian things, you know, the Galatia. You know, you know Gaul is the name. Gallia is the Latin term for Gaul, right? France, what we call France today. 
Galatia has from the same root. It's basically another way to describe Celtic peoples, the Celtic peoples of central. Of, and that land, by the way, is called Anatolia. You know what that means? Anatolia in Greek, if you know Greek, means uh, land of the rising. It means the rising sun, the land of the east. For, for the Greeks, it was the land of the east, you know, the, the sun. Like Japan, literally, in uh, Nippon and Japanese means rising, you know, land of the rising. So our Anatolia, which is that area, means the land of the rising sun, Anatolia. Okay. I, I drift. Okay. So here's the maps of Paul's things. Notice here. And notice all these cities and things here. What you don't see in this map, you say, well, you said the whole empire. Well, it stops sort of in Italy. What about the rest of the Mediterranean? Well, here's what's neat about the Eastern Mediterranean. They had great natural ports. And this is really hard when the time was sea, was sea travel was very dangerous. Having a natural port was really, really important. That's why in the, in the United States, for example, when we settle all our great cities, our ports are in the north because you have things like Boston and New York have these incredible ports, natural ports. In the south, there's only one good port the entire length, south of uh, Norfolk. The only good port in the entire east coast is Charleston. Otherwise, there are no good ports, no place to actually put a ship safely. And so no cities develop. That's why the north becomes very, you know, very urban. In the south, it's very rural because there are no places for, for ports. And so in the West, there are no ports. I mean, the only thing west here, we have after Rome, there's nothing west of here. There's a tiny little set of Marseille, you know, in the south of France, called Massilia. It was actually Greek. It was settled by Greeks. It was a real Greek city. And then we have Carthage on the north coast of Africa. That's it. So basically, most of the Roman Empire is settled around the east. And it was really a confederation of city-states. So all these cities are really sort of self-governing within the Roman orbit. So. What's the relationship to Judaism in the very first century of our Lord, you know, until we get to the year 100, you know, the first century? First of all, initially Jews were considered just another Jewish sect. You see, Judaism was not unified. There are all sorts of different ways of being Jewish within the law. And so the initial reaction is they're just another group of Jews. You have other, remember we have the Essenes, these people, you know, we have all sorts of people who, like the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, we have all these people, they're just another group of Jews. Like with, we say about this Protestants, we have all these, they say they're all Protestants, you know, they, you know, we have this, but they're all within this broader group of Protestants. So it sort of looked like that as they look at their, we're all Jews. Jews was a very widespread, there was no Talmud at the time, so it was Judaism outside of following the commandments was pretty loosey-goosey. In, uh, no, that's not a technical theological term. Okay, but there are growing tensions. Notice in the Acts of the Apostles, we get Peter and the other apostles get arrested. The martyrdom of Stephen. And this is the first thing that goes wrong. There's a sort of tension in Judaism that you should know about in the first century between most Jews no longer lived in Israel. You know, we call today with the land, we wouldn't be called Israel then, but you know, the, the, basically the Holy Land. They no longer lived in the Holy Land. And that meant they really, they, it's sort of like, think about Italian Americans. They come from Italy and things, but a lot of them now don't even speak Italian. They might say, oh yeah, you are very proud. But for Italians in Italy, you say, well, you're not really like us. You're Italian, but you're not really Italian. You know, it's nice and sweet, but you're, we're the real thing. You know, don't start, you know, don't speak, you know, they have that sometimes that sort of, this is how people felt about Hellenistic Jews. Is, uh, you know, you're not, don't, you're, we have, we're the real thing. We speak Aramaic, you know, which is very close to Hebrew. You know, we, you know, we, we, be, we live like Jews live. You just live out there with, you know, you're more pagan than you are like us. Yeah, you're Jewish, you keep our religion, God bless you. But they thought they were really sort of suspicious of these people. And that's why we have the thing in the Acts of the Apostles. Remember when they have the thing between the Hebrew and the, and the, and the Hellenists? 
The real thing where is they didn't like these. And notice that every one of the seven people named has a Greek name. Stephen is Stephanus, every Nicanor, these are all Greek names. So the deacons were all originally Greeks because you couldn't trust the, you know, the, the people in the Holy Land. They were sort of second class. You're not real Italian. You know, like it's sort of like that way. You know, you're just, you can hang out, but you know, <laughs> make way for the real thing. So that sort of, of so, so regular Jews felt suspicious anyway of Greek Jews. So that's why Stephen gets into, in, into trouble. Notice right after the, they say that the other apostles were still left behind. Well, if they hated Christianity, why did they go after? Well, the other Jews are suspicious of these Greek type of Jews, like Stephen and stuff. He's not really a Jew anyway. This is suspicious. Whereas James, brother of the Lord, wasn't even troubled. He was just left alone in Jerusalem, remember? They said the other apostles could just say, oh, they're real Jews. They had disagreements, but they're the real thing. Now, later in moves, we get to James, the apostle, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. So we're starting to spread out that he's certainly a Jew, but we have Saul's persecution of the church as begins expulsions from synagogues. But what really makes things go south is when the church opens up to Gentiles without converting. They open up and say, hey, anyone you know, can come to Jesus. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. Because the original idea, no, you become a Jew, and, and it, this is a type of Jew. You become a Christian type of Jew. No, no. You believe that, that Jews, can, Jews who believe in Jesus, but people who are Gentiles, remain Gentiles who believe in Jesus. Jews thought this is a danger to the Jewish faith. And this is, this is whoa, this is bad. No, just, because the whole idea of Pharisaic Judaism was keep separate from the nations. This is some hybrid Judaism, which is going to be a danger. Another thing, by the way, that's going to cause real anger among Jews is virtually everybody who's devout converts to Christianity. Because the main, the main problem is disappears. You, don't, you can have all the good stuff. You can have the one God, you can have all these things, and you don't stuck with having to abandon your family, get circumcised, all this. And this is so changed that Jews used to be, a, remember you said you cross sea and land to make a convert? Now there's a rule with Jews that you have to be turned down three times before you can convert. They discouraged conversion because they said, look at the last time we did this. Those Christians came in and almost threw us underwater. That's a Jewish view. You know, they almost destroyed our faith with this Christian stuff. So the whole attitude of Judaism will change later about, you know, because look, you bring converts, but they're not really converted. You know, that kind of thing. When they're like devout people, you know, so unless you really, really convert, and we're going to even discourage that three times, we have to say, no, no. If you talk to your Jewish friend, God forbid, about converting to Judaism, the first thing they'll say is be a good Christian. You know, honor God, you know, in your own way. That would be the first thing they tell you. And only we say, no, no, I really feel that only the third time. But I, I wonder. But you see why they're getting there saying, hey, this is a real threat to Judaism. Because something had happened. Uh, remember in Ezra, you might not realize the other, this day, two, yesterday we had this reading from Ezra, uh, where they read the law. What the Jews love about this, this is celebrated in Judaism. Remember how in the Old Testament they're always going after other gods and have to be brought back? Once Ezra leads the law after the Babylonian exile, never again will the Jews leave the God of Israel. Never again. They are faithful, and this is the beginning of Judaism, in a sense. Never again will we have this constant going to, no. Jews will remain faithful forever. Okay, so they, that's a big deal to them, the reading of the law with Ezra, is, you know, from this point on, that will not be a Jewish problem. Jews will not go over the Jews. Jewish, there will always be people on the side, but the Jewish nation itself will be ferociously faithful to the God of Israel from that day forward. Okay, so we have that and the arrest of Paul. Remember, what was Paul charged with? See, we told you this. You brought a pagan into the temple. 
a Gentile, not a proselyte, that would be different, you know. No, you brought one of these people who's, it's not true, but that was the thing. See, you're going you're gonna to wreck the thing, you're going to soil the temple with these un, impure people. Okay. Now, here's what really is going to bring the uh, thing. Is, there's a great Jewish revolt in 66 to 70 AD, the Jewish war. And the Jerusalem is conquered in 70 AD, and the temple is burned to the ground. That's the end of the temple, the end of the second temple. Forever, the temple will never be rebuilt. However, here's what something, one of the reasons why people who aren't real believers, sometimes who don't believe the Gospels and things, they'll say one thing they believe, that Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem. You say, why would people who don't believe in Jesus believe that? I mean, believe in Jesus as the Lord. Because we know for historical fact that what did Christians do when the Roman armies came to Jerusalem? And they, were, they also practiced, you know, they all left. The entire Christian community left because Jesus had told them when it comes to leave. It's amazing. It's a, a testimony to you. Like, Jesus told them, and they left. Well, Jews felt that was a betrayal, like leaving the Alamo before it was taken. You know, you should have stayed with us to the end, and that was a real cause of bitterness. You betrayed us in our hour of need. You left. Okay. And increasingly, Jews come to view Christians. You're not a Jewish sect. You're not Jews at all. This is a bunch of Gentiles playing Jew. There was this kind of resentment. You're wrecking everything. You know, this, you're not real Jews. We became the, the Jewish feeling. And by the end of the century, Christians in return are looking Jews as being sort of a different religion. So instead of looking upon ourselves as this is a family fight within the family, you know, you know about this, uh, it comes to be we're different religions. You know, they start looking upon, they talk about Jews and pagans, you know. The Jews are obviously closer to us, but they look upon these not being this is us, but they haven't quite got there yet as being fundamentally different. This is a sad tale, but this is what really the gradual, what's, what happens is, especially the bringing the Gentiles in seemed to threat to Judaism itself. They figure if we bring in Gentiles, then we won't be Jews anymore. It's sort of, frankly, it's sort of what you have in Europe now with some people who are threatened by the migration, saying if we bring these people in, we're not going to be Danish anymore. You know, we might, you know, we might well be Danish, but we won't be Danish. We will look like Danes. We won't, you know, that, that, it was that kind of fear. I'm just saying that's the kind of people that Jews said, whoa, 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 we've got a Judaism for Jews type of thing. Okay. So now what about the Roman response? Romans don't really care much about Christians in the first century. Uh, there are only two official responses. With Nero, when the Rome burns down, people associate Nero with it, and so Nero blames the Christians because they were unpopular. You know, they seemed a strange, uh, strange sect. Uh, but it was nothing, it was systematic, that persecution wasn't around the empire or something. It was uh, just a, you know, we have, uh, so, you know, Tacitus tells us what had happened. Ultimately led to the death of Peter and Paul. And then towards the end of the century, we have a brief time where Domitian, um, uh, you know, basically, we know that he's, some people are refusing to recognize him by his title, Dominus and Deus. One of his, the many titles, you know, like the Queen of England has, Queen of England, Queen of Ireland, you know, these kind of things. You know, Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. And for that's not shocking to Romans because there are all sorts of gods. You know, emperors often become gods. They call it apotheosis when they die. But some people, when they say those are probably Christians, you know, we're, we're, we're be, get, get on that. Okay. So the first extra-biblical literary monument is the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve. You've got to read this book. Why? What's neat is, first of all, it's a church manual. It tells you with a church planner, how do you do church? You know, I love this. How do you do church? And one thing I've got, I didn't put a note here, note on the primitive church structure, is in the early church, basically we have church planters. What happens, people like, you know, they're often called apostles. Apostolic means they're on a mission. 
And they also have these traveling prophets and things. We read about them in the Abidic Hebrews, but we don't have the really the organization you know, of elders and things. It's going to happen very quickly, but we still have a lot of the Wild West type. It's like you go out there and you have a sheriff or something you know, working out of the saloon, but later on you build the schoolhouse, right? you, build, you build the courthouse, you know, et cetera. That's going to happen very early in the second century. So what's our status at the end of the century? This first century is all about basically Judaism rejects Christianity. It's no longer part of us. It becomes part of the other. You know, that rejection comes largely from Jews who feel threatened by the influx of Gentiles. They say, Judaism cannot survive this. Again, it's so similar to Europe now of people saying, we're not going to be Swedes. You know, we're not going to be French. You know, all these, these, these foreigners come and they really worried that Judaism wouldn't be Judaism. That it would be inevitably these people would bring baggage with them and start you know, like it had happened earlier, you know, they're going to start worshiping foreign gods, they'll start bringing all the Greek stuff with them. And also intermittent persecution, but nothing serious. I mean, you know, occasionally things, but it wasn't anything systematic. Occasionally people would run afoul of the law or something, but okay, that's our first century. Now, second century, making our case, the age of the apologist. Apologist doesn't mean I'm sorry. Apologia means a defense. It's what you offered in the court saying, no, here's why we're right. You know, you're making your case. So an apologia is a positive thing in Greek and Latin. It doesn't mean like, I'm sorry. It means the opposite. It's saying, no, here's why you're wrong. I'm right. You know, here I'm my defense. They're going to make like what Peter says, be ready to give a defense you know, for the hope that is in you. So let's talk about what happens in this century. This is the definitive end of Christianity and Judaism. Become, uh, uh, in, there's a second revolt people don't realize. The second revolt is in 132 32 through 135. It's called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. You know, and the Bar Kokhba revolt is the Romans are now out of patience. It comes because what had happened is Jerusalem was now renamed Iolia Capitolina, a Greek name, and the temple site was now had a temple of Jupiter on it where they were making sacrifices to pagan gods on the temple site. Jews had too much, so they had a revolt. But the Romans, even the, the, Jewish, the Jewish war was horrifying in the 70, but still Judea was Jewish. There were Jews there. They decided on a massive ethnic cleansing. Jews had to leave Judea, all of them. And a Jew couldn't even visit Jerusalem. To set foot a Jew in Jerusalem was a capital offense. They said, we, we're never going to have, these Jews have been nothing but trouble, is the way the Romans looked at it. And they decided, get rid of them. It's like after the Second World War, the Volga Deutsch, where Germans would live for 100 years in, in, in Russia, were eliminated. There could be no Germans in Russia, you know, after the Second World War. So they were all eliminated. And this is why there's some bitterness with the use of the word Palestine. They even decided with ethnic cleansing to change the name of the land. It was Judea, meaning land of the Jews. It now became Palestina, land of the Philistines, people who had never, ever lived there. The Philistines were the people who lived on the coast. <laughs> and so they said, since the Jews are gone, let's just call the whole thing Palestina, the land of the Philistines. So that's why people now, if you sometimes politically, people get very upset, or like Tom Bowman understandably hates when we, if we use the term Palestine as being a neutral term. The neutral term for the Holy Land is Canaan. That's the neutral term. It's the land of Canaan, you know, the pre-religious term. It becomes Judea, the land of the Jews, you know, later on. But it was never Palestine except as part of an ethnic cleansing which was designed to remove every trace of the Jews. Sort of like the Nazis talk about Judenrein, Jew pure. You know, nothing, nothing looks, even looks Jewish, not a Jewish book, not a synagogue. You know, we, it was, so that's why there's some real bitterness about using the term Palestine sometimes, you know, with people saying, this was a name was given to our land after we were forcibly removed or killed to remove all members. 
Jews retrench. What are we going to do? How are Jews going to work? There will never be a temple again. How, what happens with Judaism? First of all, I said, we've got, the Christians have been a pain. We've got to separate ourselves definitively. So they even add a prayer. So Christians often still would try to go to synagogue and things because we didn't, we still saw ourselves, you know, they said, look, they added a curse as part of the Jewish prayer. A curse of Christians is, is one of the 18 benedictions. You know, so a Christian could not in good conscience go and pray in a synagogue because they'd have this prayer. The Pharisees, the Sadducees are wiped out. Their whole business was the temple, right? Without a temple, they were nothing. So the Pharisees, the Pharisees of the Bible, they become rabbinic Judaism. And Judaism takes character because Jews believe there's the law of Moses. But more important to Judaism than the law of Moses, it's hard to believe, is the Talmud. The Talmud is called the Oral Torah. In addition to the written law, how do we know what that means? Is we have the teachings of the rabbis tell us, you know, the authoritative interpret. And that's called the Talmud. Talmud is Hebrew means the learning. And the Talmud is made up of the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the actual in legal interpretation of the laws. And then it includes others. Uh, uh, the Gemara is various lawyers commenting on the Mishnah. And that's if you ever see the Talmud has the circles within circles. It's basically legal commentaries. But that's the center of Judaism, is the Talmud. The Torah is, the Talmud is where, where Judaism is. Rabbinic Judaism is based on the Talmud, uh, with the laws are based on the 613 commandments of the Torah. So we're gone. We're just two completely separate paths now. Now, why are pagans, pagans are now getting hostile. Everybody now meets Christians. They've run into them somewhere. Here's why they don't like them. The first is absent from civic life. In the ancient world, religion, again, wasn't terribly religious in the sense that, you know, their view is that some idiot. And so it's like not, like not saying the Pledge of Allegiance. On all your big days, people got together and they normally start out like, like when I grew up, they used to have public prayers before everything, a football game, et cetera. Everything started, but it's considered innocent, even if you're religious. Well, that's what they do. And so in the ancient world, people always had sacrifices with all the official holidays and things, and you'd all have a public meal, a big picnic with the sacrifice, all this kind of stuff. Christians wouldn't participate because it was pagan. It was pagan worship. And they looked upon it, well, why won't you do, be part of the community? Why won't you do anything? They would do nothing with the official Roman, you know, that way. They would not be part, they wouldn't take public office. They'd do nothing with the Roman government and things, you know, saying, no, this is, no, no. Because it all involved pagan oaths and this kind of thing. They had secret meetings, which really made the Romans, you know, they always met in secret because, again, um, you know, even the catechumens were turned away until they were baptized. You could never actually see the Eucharist. And they heard tr troubling stories about cannibalism and incest. These people were loved their brothers and sisters, was taken quite literally by some people that they were making love to, you know, um, which is not as crazy a thing in the ancient world. Egyptian pharaohs often married their sister. In Persia, it was common too, but they thought, the Romans thought that was creepy. Okay, so there were, and the, that's where you have the, the, when people talked about the body and blood of Christ, people, you know, obviously this became a thing, well, they sacrificed babies and things and eat them. Okay. Haughtiness towards the pagan gods. Often, remember in the Old Testament, often the, the, the prophets mock the pagan gods. So it's not bad enough that they don't participate. They often mock the pagans. Oh, look, that's just an idol. That's just a statue. Look at you people. You look, you look silly. And this really irritated people. You know, they thought that this was just rude and, um, and they didn't like it. And refusal to worship the emperor was considered like saluting the flag. It was considered, look, everybody does. This means that you're loyal to the great Roman Empire, which had brought us all this peace and prosperity. So this is, uh, again, how pagans saw it, why pagans did not have warm, fuzzy feelings about Christians. Leading to the early persecutions. Having, despite that, however, 
The persecutions were always local and sporadic. They were like pogroms. Do you know what pogrom is? The attacks on Jews in Russia in the 19th century. They actually weren't organized. What would happen is something would happen, it happened like it used to happen in the American South. Somebody says that uh, a young African-American looks sideways at, at a white woman or something, and people get all upset, and they come you know, with, like a mob and grab him and hang him and lynching. That's really what happened to the Christians. People would say, this person said something about our gods, and people would go here, and they would go. And sometimes they'd be worried, why would they be worried about their gods? Because remember, the gods were like the mob figures. If you didn't behave, everybody would get group punishment. You know, if we have people dis dissing our gods, the gods could punish us for not doing anything about it. You know, look, think of it. You know, basically, if you stand by and somebody you know, puts a scratch across a mobster's car, he's going to take and everybody there. You, should, you did nothing? <laughs> so there's that, uh, that feeling. We have some examples. The Martyrs of Lyon uh, was a riot where they were actually brought in and uh, killed. We have Ignatius of Antioch, his wonderful, we'll go to talk about him in a special thing. He's an amazing early church writer uh, who was actually sacrificed in the Colosseum, I mean, part of the games. Polycarp of Smyrna is burned alive the North, North African martyrs. And the result is this, is they were witness to their faith. Uh, that's where the word martyr comes from. It, it, the word means witness in Greek. And here's what was so impressive about the martyrs, because actually people really were impressed by the martyrs. Here's why. You know, they say, when people are about to die, you know what they really believe. Now, most people in the ancient world, the, the, the afterlife is nowhere you'd want to be. For most people, sort of a land of shades, and it wasn't, uh, best you hope it wouldn't be awful. Okay, it was not a place anyone wanted to be. Okay. So the basic point is this. Christians claimed all of these things, but when you actually say, look, you can just walk home and we're all good and we love each other, have dinner with us on us. We'll give you a reward. Or you can insist on this craziness and we're going to torture you. When Christians actually chose the second, they said, they must actually believe this. I know, I, I've actually was with a person who's dying. And what they asked me as a priest, and they said, they knew me personally, Stephen. Is it really true? They say, I know you're, you know, is it, yes, I have good news for you. It really is true. But that's a real feeling. Do you really believe this? It would be so much more if I knew this. Is this just that we all talk and we say these things we're supposed to believe? Do you really believe this? And there's no doubting when a martyr went to faith. They really believe this. And that really is part. There are people actually converted after executions to be executed themselves. They said, this is what I've been looking for my whole life. They're dying happy, and they know there's something better. If this, whoa, I want that. This is a huge thing. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said, is martyrs were like Christian seeds. You have martyrs and suddenly all sorts of people become Christian. Instead of being discouraged, it had the opposite effect. People said, this is real. This isn't some philosophical opinion. There are tons of those all around. Okay. Now, what's the response? The apologists. Basically, these were the people who defended the Christian faith. Often these were, now we're getting everybody. We have people, very educated people, becoming Christian too. And they wanted to explain, first of all, our faith. You, you don't really know what we believe. If you know you'd really respect this. Wow, this is incredible. You have all these rumors and stuff. Let me tell you what we actually believe about you know, God. And our morals, look at how we live. We're, rather than you know, making love to brothers and sisters, we're actually about to chase the most purest people you're going to find. You know, look at how we live. This is how we, we live for, as a matter of conscience. And they attack the pagan view of man in the world, saying this is a view which is de dehumanizing. You know, it, it doesn't glory. You know, it's really, it's really, uh, it's really not, not, not a very idea of something you'd want. And, and we're loyal to the emperor. There are no more loyal Romans than we are. If you just leave us alone with our religion, you'll never find a better citizen. First of all, we actually pay taxes as a matter of conscience. In the Roman world, just assumed to pay taxes what you couldn't get away with. I mean, you know, tax is like France. Tax evasion is a way of life. 
you know, it's just a matter, you know, <laughs> how much, you know, how much, you know, the the appropriate amount to cheat on. I mean, it's, <laughs> and so we, as a matter of conscience, it's so like I'm, I'm a driver. I actually obey the law, whether a cop is there or not, because I think it's my duty and conscience to obey traffic laws. I don't do it because I might get a ticket. I do it because it's say we're the best citizens you'll ever find. And here are some of our great writers, Aristides of Athens. Justin Martyr's amazing. Uh, we'll talk about him separately. He's a very important source at the Church of Rome. Uh, Melito of Sardis, uh, Athenagoras of Athens, Tertullian of Carthage. These are amazing people who talk about our faith in a beautiful way. You say, wow, I want that. Okay. Now, a challenge from within. That's a challenge from outside. But the trouble with Christianity inside had its own challenges. And the bishops are talking about Gnosticism. What Gnosticism means is, Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge, okay? And here's what they said. It comes back to Greek philosophy. They're saying, you know, why are things, not, everyone can tell the world's not the way it should be. You know, the idea of something, death, suffering, why is it this way? And the Greek world, here's how they looked at it. Here's the heart of Gnosticism. The Greeks didn't know enough about science and things to realize they, most ancient peoples, or even into the Middle Ages, did not believe that, your, that the mind had anything to do with thinking physically. You see what I'm saying? Is they're saying, how could matter create thoughts? They had no idea of the physiology, the chemistry of the brain. So they thought it was a proof that your thinking is something non-physical, that there are two parts of a person. There's a non-physical part, we all know, because if you ever open the brain, people saw a lot of open brains. People had horrible accidents and were killed in battle and stuff. People saw brains and they realized, clearly this can't have, it was in, incomprehensible, this could create chemistry, all that. no thought of this. So clearly this is a miracle. This is something spiritual that's not physical. But somehow it's associated with my body, but it's not my body. And then we have all the physical stuff, the stuff that goes to the bathroom, that kind of stuff, the stuff that sweats and smells, yuck. And so the Greek view is what happened, there was this terrible cosmic accident. We have God and we have these incredible, you know, some people like Plato and think, we have all this good, but somehow it's like when a, when a spark goes from the sun, it's incredible heat and light, but the farther it gets away, the colder and darker it becomes. So somehow matter is sort of like what's left over when you get down here. And the real secret to salvation is to climb back up to get out of this gunk. We're stuck in mud, like we fell into a mud. You know, we have to dig out of the mud, like out of the quicksand, and go back up. To. And so their whole idea was to be freed of everything material. That's what Gnostics were. And the real, how you did this, you found the secret knowledge that would let you get away, escape from the body, this prison that our beautiful mind is in, this disgusting prison. This is why the Greeks were discussing with Paul when he talked to the Areopagus. They agreed with him, by the way. He wasn't going with them, people to understand. Educated Greeks didn't believe in all these gods and shrines. So when he started making fun of them, they said, oh, we're so with you. See, they, were, they weren't finding it. They were upset. Yeah, yeah, duh, yeah. We, of course, gods don't actually live in these shrines. Gods are, you know, ethereal beings. Okay. But when he said a resurrection of the body, who would want a body? Who in the world would want that? Okay. And so there are two things. So the roots are this anti-materialism of the Greeks. But ironically, it had two different ways it could go. If you don't think the body's important, one way you could treat it is just go, go wild, because what difference does it make, as long as your mind's in the right place? So you could have all the sex you wanted, you could eat, you know, the body didn't make any difference, it was just junk. And so do what you want, that's a hedonistic type of approach. 
The other approach was the opposite side, the obvious, yeah, that you know, everything you could do to get more spiritual is get away from it. You, you eat as little food as you could, never have sex. You know, oh Lord, that's, that's the bottom. Uh, one of the things that was looked in, in Timothy, there's a passage I'll explain to you. The Gnostics believed that women were inferior. That's why in the Gospel of Thomas, a uh, woman's salvation is she'll actually turn into a man. <laughs> is why were women so bad? If you think matter is bad, women are the source of life. More bodies, yuck. And so that's why Tim, he, Paul is, is mocking them, saying, I'll tell you something. Women are saved through China. Instead of this degrading women, it honors women. That's what he says. Women, instead of being degraded, this is an honor to bring life into the world. This is the, the, he's making fun of the Gnostics. It's exactly, you think this is degrading, this is as good as it gets. Being a co-creator with God, it does, doesn't get better. It's not some horrible reality because we couldn't restrain ourselves. And now because we couldn't restrain our bodies, now we have other bodies. I do. Okay. So some asceticism. Okay. Now, let's talk about some heresies that were influenced by this. We have Cerinthus, because again, all these different types of Gnostic thinking, is how do we deal with this fact that Jesus was a human being? Was One approach to it, they said, well, actually, it's the spirit of God that comes upon this human being. So we don't want to confuse those two. And it later leaves him. It comes on his, they would say it came on his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends. And it's sort of, he's using Jesus' body like a puppet or something, you know. So, he's, so God doesn't get compromised. He's simply using this so he can communicate and things with us. When he's done, he goes back and Jesus is dead and he's out of here. That's Cerinthus' view. Basilides said that Jesus never even had that. Jesus just took the appearance like an optical illusion, like one of those holograms. He just, uh, you know, that's, it's called docetism because dokane in Greek means to appear. It's just the appearance of a human being. He wasn't actually a human being. <coughs> Valentinus said that what really happened, our salvation had nothing to do with being in a body. As Jesus basically just taught us that he fortified the inner spirit so we could climb out. He brought us the two knowledge, true knowledge that allow us to climb out of the mess. He didn't do anything salvific. The cross, forget all that stuff. He was just a great teacher who taught us, you know, if we follow his teachings, we can climb out. Marcion. Marcion takes another point. He said, well, gee, if we believe the God of the Old Testament actually created the world, that means he must be the devil. And the reason why is this is, remember, there's a, one of the great ancient religions was called Zoroastrianism. You know, uh, uh, and Zoroastrianism believed there were two gods, a god of how they explain the god of good, uh, called Ahura Mazda, and the god of evil, evil, Araman. And so they're saying, hey, that explains matter. Matter is the product of the anti-God, the negative God. And so the God of the Old Testament must be the anti-God. And the God, that's where you get this distinction of the Old Testament all bad, you know, then we have the New Testament good. That actually comes from this, Marcionism. And he said, yes, that's all the work of the devil. And Jesus is the true Father in God. And so he denied the Old Testament. He said, that's a scripture, that's horrible. And he denied most of the New Testament, which is conveniently, inconveniently supported the Old Testament. So he only took selected portions of Paul's epistles and selected portions of the Gospel of Luke was all he thought was inspired. That's Marcionism. Tatian was famous for his extreme asceticism. Again, severe mortification, no marriage, meat, wine. This is why, again, we have, he says in Timothy, people, he called them the doctrines of devils, prohibiting marriage and food and this kind of thing. So he's referring to this. Okay, this is all happening at this, you know, at the late first century into the second. And Montanus, uh, again, he has perpetual fasting. You ate the minimum you could to stay alive. No marriage, no attempt to avoid martyrdom. You know, anything gets you out of the body faster is better. 
These were things that the church, and we already see them faced upon. Remember when John says, who's the Antichrist? The one who denies Jesus came in the flesh. Oh, they say he came, but not in the flesh. No, really, in the flesh. He suffered and died. This is anathema to people who think the body's bad. How can the body save anybody? We say his death on the cross saved us. But bodies are all bad. They can't do anything good. Okay, that's what's going on in the New Testament. This is the heresy we see in the New Testament is Gnosticism. The others will come later. It's only in the New Testament. They're fighting off. John especially is fighting off Gnosticism, big time. Why? Because John's the latest writer. He's the one, John's gospel is latest towards the end of the first century. His epistles are the latest. So he's the one getting the first shades where Gnosticism is really coming in. Because it's, it's so popular in the Greek world, people naturally take those Greek ideas and try to bring them into Christianity and paint them with a Christian brush. Now, what's our response? One of the great friends, who's dearly beloved of our bishop, is Irenaeus of Lyon. And Irenaeus, he was a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp, by the way, was an actual disciple of John the Apostle. This is amazing. Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. And he wrote a work against Gnosticism, which is amazing. It's called, we call it Against All Heresies from its Latin title, but the real title in Greek, I love this, against what is falsely called knowledge. He says, don't call it knowledge. It's not knowledge at all. It's falsely. It's a, it's, a, it's a sham. It's not knowledge. We have knowledge. The true knowledge is in Jesus Christ. That's knowledge and truth. This stuff is a sham. The so-called, that's a way of saying the inter- quotation mark, you know, uh, scare quotes, the falsely called knowledge. And uh, one thing that's really amazing here, too, is it tells us this. Uh, it, he's already telling, he's treating the New, T- New Testament as authoritative because the original Bible was the Old Testament for us. But he's treating the New Testament as authoritative and appeals to the apostolic tradition. Is here's one of the things the Gnostics would say. They'd say, remember how the apostles often got things wrong when Jesus during his earthly ministry? Well, what happened is Jesus had secret teachings he gave to them that they didn't they only shared with their closer inner circle, and we kept those teachings. So your gospels have all those teachings to outsiders, but we have the real thing. And here's what Irenaeus said. He said, let's figure this out. We know that the, the church as a fact, historical fact, that no one denied. The church in Attica was founded by Peter. And in the straight line of succession, Peter and Paul were basically the key people in Rome. We know that Mark, who was the disciple of Peter, founded the church at Alexandria. So these are all churches founded by apostles in continued succession. All of us, they, all of them believe the faith of the Gospels, the regular Gospels. You're claiming that all the people who actually know Jesus were wrong. All the churches they followed... Nobody got this doctrine, but you somehow came up with it. How, you know, is that believable? They're saying, no, the church, you know, look, if you look all around, we know what the apostles taught. The churches they found, and none of those churches believe any of this nonsense. They all believe what we're teaching, what the Gospels teach. He's arguing to the apostolic witness. Our internal developments is three orders of ministry. In the earliest church, what happened, we had that Wild West mode. You go out there, you have, um, say, what's it, Quesa? Focus. Okay, I can. How do I? Help! Help! See the violence in here in the system. Um, help! Okay. Sorry. We were um, here. Is that it? Yeah. Is what's that? Oh yeah! Isn't that neat? Yeah. He was actually eaten by lions. And. Um, and he went willingly. Let's talk about him. He's an amazing man. But Ignatius of Antioch uh, makes it very clear because he writes letters to seven different churches in, uh, uh, in all over Asia Minor, plus Rome itself. And it's very clear in his letters what we know is that by the beginning of the first century, he died in probably about 105, no later than 115. 
is that the universal practice of the church is what had happened originally the church is you know these, these people would found a church they'd appoint some elders and the elders would sort of rule the group but what happens in the early church is they have a, a originally the church the words elder and and overseer episcopos which we get episcopal you know bishop uh means an overseer okay and that also means like a guard it means literally someone not just someone we think overseer is a boss it also means like someone who's just you know just watching out for you a shepherd is an overseer that means watching out for you okay is every church has a single pastor as a chief pastor and then has assistants and now we have the bishop and then we have he's surrounded by a, by by a uh, presbyterate a college of priests of elders that's a from presbyteros you know, presbyteroi you know a priest okay and then deacons that's the universal structure of the church. So by the beginning of the first century, every church has a single teacher who is the bishop. And he connects all the other churches who each have their bishop, and they get together as bishops, you know, and work things out. Okay. And Easter is actually um, comes to be observed separate from the Jewish Passover. But that's another story when we talk about the church calendar. Status at the end of the century, the churches that made a really good case to the world. Our first theologians and things, we've done a really good case. And it's level at all levels. We see it everywhere in Roman society. There are people at all levels, educated, you know, influential people. It's really, it's the thing. It's really attracting intelligent people who want more. It's really making, a, making a, things are going good. So that's why we have third century, the empire strikes back. The age of persecutions. What's going on? Well, something's happening in politics. The Roman empire is under major pressure in the eastern and western fronts because here's one thing if you don't know about the geography of Europe why we have more trouble in Western Europe than they do in Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe is blessed by a series of mountains like the Carpathian Mountains and things, which make it harder to roll into Eastern Europe. But in the north, we have something called the Great Northern European Plain. It crosses all the way across Poland, Northern Germany, into France. It's a plain, meaning it's easy to cross. The great horse tribes and things of Central Asia, this is their natural turf. They come in with us, and they're professional warrior peoples. They come in. These are the barbarian invasions, the great, what they call the great movement of the peoples. And so that's ironically, even though they come from the east, the people who suffer most are in the west because they, go, they follow the, the highway, the great north. They attack on the east, but it's easier to hold them off. In the west, they come through. You know, they, they, they come through. And here's what bothers people as they start coming through. Is remember we said in traditional Roman religion says you know we have this deal. It's because all these Christians are saying horrible things about the gods, they're dishonoring, or aren't giving the sacrifices. This is our punishment for this. So people are really saying, you know, matter of fact, Augustine has to write later on the city of God. He has to explain how the the fall of the empire is not due to the wrath of the gods. Because our proof is, look, when we were successful, we ruled the world when we, when we followed our gods. Your God comes in here, and now everybody's crossing our borders. You know, even, you know, like, so that was the argument. He had to write the book of the City of God. Also, the perceived need for uh, more unity in the face of danger. We need to be uniting. Instead of you people are always dividing. Instead of joining together as Romans, you're always just, you won't come to our ceremonies. You're, you know, we need to be putting it together. And finally, something else. This is the thousandth anniversary of the founding of Rome, is in 248. And so this is basically the, the campaign for make Rome great again. It's saying we need to go back. Uh, they didn't have, they had red togas, right? No, uh, <laughs> we've, we've got to go back. We've got to go back to Roman values. So there are people saying we need to go back to the old religion, to Roman values. So all this is coming together. The fact we're under threat, we need to bind together and, and saying with the thousandth anniversary, this is the time to go back to what made us great. So this, you know, you know, make Rome great again. 
Okay. So now, for the first time, we have organized systematic persecution of Christians. Not just, you know, out there's a riot here, a riot there. First of all, at the beginning of the century, we have, we have a rule that says you cannot convert anymore to Judaism or Christianity. The next thing is the persecution of uh, Dacius. And notice this is right in the, in the wake of the, the thousandth anniversary of the, Roman, of the founding of Rome. It's a systematic persecution. What he did is he required every Roman to worship the god and have a legal document saying they did, called a labellus. It was a, a little you know, certificate that said you, you, it's like having your driver's license. If you didn't have one or weren't willing to fix it, you know you were subject to Roman. So it's how every Christian now had the faith, you know, could be asked for their labellus, and if they didn't have it, you know, this uh, they they could uh, have this. And also, Valerian prohibition of Christian worship and the visit to the catacombs. I, I want to go back, I, hold there, but some important point I forgot to mention to you was in, when I talk in the second century where things get ugly between Christians and Jews, the definitive break, another thing happened from the Christian side that caused a lot of bitterness. Remember, Romans uh, gave special status to Jews. They didn't have to do things because they were Jews. Jews had special privilege. They never had to worship the emperor. Everyone understood that. And as long as Christians were treated as a Jewish sect, they enjoyed the same thing. You know, we're Christian Jews. Christians began denying, telling the Romans, these people are not Jews, which put them in legal jeopardy. And Christians, I mean, this was not just, uh, we don't like you. This change your legal status means you could be arrested. You know, you could, this, and this was very angry. The first letter, remember in Acts of the Apostles, where uh, he says, this is Smyrna. He says, those people who claim they're Jews, but they are not. He's saying, we're the real Jews because we honor the Jewish Messiah. The reason he says you're not real Jews is saying, you're the ones who are saying we're not Jews. If you're going to talk that way, then you're the ones who are saying who the real Jews are. We're the real Jews because we worship the Jewish Messiah. That's what he's saying there in that point. That's why they're so angry. And he calls it, you know what you actually are is the synagogue of Satan because Satan is the opposer. Because you're actually, instead of supporting the God of Israel, you're opposing him. Like when he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So if you ever never understood, that's what he's saying. This is bitterness of people saying, we're being persecuted because you throw us under the bus. You know, you know, basically by saying we're not Jews, suddenly we're subject to official Roman. That's part of the bitterness. There's plenty to go on both sides. But they're not babes in the woods here. There's a lot of family. This is a family quarrel. Okay. Now, so what do we have? Persecution pro proves unsuccessful. Christians are just too numerous. Okay. And Galleon wants to issue an issue, uh, edict of toleration. There's a brief break with Aurelian who tries to get saying, well, maybe I could do something else sort of like the Christian God, like a one thing that would be more spiritual. And he calls it the unconquered son, Saul Invictus, but it doesn't go anywhere. It has no traction, so that doesn't work very much. The end of the persecution, the very last Roman persecution will be the end of the century, 284, 305 of Diocletian, and he has a two-year persecution right at the end. And... Um, the empire is really coming into hard times to, keep, to manage it because communication is so poor in the Roman Empire compared to modern standards that they actually have to divide it in half saying we just can't get, communicate fast enough. And they have an eastern Roman, they're officially one empire, but we have an eastern half and a western half. Okay, And each half has an Augustus, meaning he's the top boss in the, there. And each one has a number two who will be a successor who's called the Caesar. So we have an Augustus as the top of the eastern and the western. And we have a Caesar who is their, their heir apparent, the one who comes after them to, or to ensure we'll have an organized succession. And here's a map of the empire, how it's split. And the exact split line comes, the difference between Latin and Greek is where the line of the split is. 
where the basic language is Latin or Greek of regular folks, as opposed to the educated classes. Okay? And internal developments. The Roman church adopts Latin, and by the way, as the empire gets under more and more threat, people don't have the luxury to learn Greek and Greek starts to die out as a language that educated people know. By the time we get to Augustine, we're going to find out Augustine didn't know Greek very well. And it's really, you know, he probably had to learn it as an adult, you know, whereas it would have been automatic. You know, uh, Ambrose still had good Greek. Okay, um, it's really very debatable how much Greek Augustine knew. Okay, um, uh, what happens, we have this role of the episcopate. Uh, Cyprian is another great church father we're going to say. He's the perfect Anglican. He says, here's our polity. He says the bishop is supreme in his diocese. He is the teacher of his diocese. No one has authority, no other bishop like the Bishop of Rome has authority over him. Every bishop in their own diocese. But how do we keep bishops in order? It's all the bishops together. You know, take someone, they say, well, you're not teaching what we, you know, that's, that's the job of the bishops in general. So the idea of, that's what we call ourselves, like in the English wars, we call ourselves Episcopalians, meaning defenders of the bishops. That the bishop in his diocese is the, is the, is the authority in his diocese. And what's the authority of bishop? Bishops together gathered in council or in synods. Synods were local councils. We're called synods. From syn in Greek means uh, together. You know, uh, synodos is coming together in Greek. It'd be the equivalent of Latin clementus, you know, coming together. Okay. And uh, we, have a, a, we do have a crisis in, is during the persecutions, what do you do with people who would actually deny Jesus, who had given in the persecution? And this actually would split the church a few times. Both in Roman and Carthage, there's a major church split over how you should treat them. You know, should we let these people back in? In, in Carthage, he got criticism because he didn't want to let them in easy because we had to emphasize this is serious. Let them in, but, you know, in Rome, they, they tended to be the opposite way. They tended to be too hard. But anyway, there, there tended to be a split. The church actually split in both cities over this. Key personalities. Origin, that's a uh, top figure there. The most influential of the Greek fathers, one of the great minds of human history. Prodigious writers, has incredible commentaries in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about him separately. Anthony the Great, who founds monasticism, the first uh, desert monk. And the key uh, literary, key literary mod, uh, uh, monument is the apostolic tradition of Hippolytus, which gives us, what, what these are great, is they actually give us handbooks of how the church actually operates. Hey, if you're doing church, here's how you do it. So it's invaluable because it gives us all that practical stuff. What were people doing? Status at the end of the century is the church has proved itself by trial and the church is here to stay. It's a force to be reckoned with. Now, fourth century, dawn of a new day, the beginning of the Christian empire. Constantine starts out as the second in command, the Caesar of the Western Empire. He manages to become the Augustus of the West, and then he actually makes, the East is more important than the West, by the way. The East is where all the money and stuff is. The East is now the, the really big stuff, the important stuff. He then becomes the Augustus of the Eastern Empire, and actually eventually take, he's very open to Christianity. Why is he open to Christianity? Here's why. The top brass in Rome are starting to think, you know, everyone agrees religion has to be something that unifies us. There's no way the Christians are going away. And no one's really wedded to paganism that much. Christianity is probably, the, if we want to unite the empire, probably this is the way to go. Because Christians aren't going anywhere. And we probably have a better chance getting rid of paganism and making our Christians, but we need to have one religion. So that's what really leads us this direction suddenly going through, is that Christianity seems to be the winner. There's a miracle at the uh, Milvian Bridge during a um, Constantine, as he tells the story, he said, I was in a battle, he looked like he was going to lose, and he said, he put this, this banner, that, that X and R, the, this is Cairo, 
chi, the X thing, is CH, it's hard, it's pronounced K in Greek. CH is pronounced K in Greek, okay? I like kairos, you know, kairos time, okay? And R is, you know, P is R. So it's the first letters for Christos. In Greek and Latin, you use the first words of a name as an abbreviation. Okay, so it's, you know, that's the, the abbreviation for Christ. He put this on a special banner called the Labarum, and he said, if I win the battle, this will be my proof that, you know, and he did. And so he uh, converts to Christianity. He issues the Edict of Milan, which is toleration. And then um, he starts off, he actually uses uh, imperial power. Since the purpose of the church is uh, religion in an empire is to bring unity, he says, we can't have two churches. So he goes to North Africa, and by force, he says, the law is stepping in. These people who separated from the church because you thought, they thought you were being too tough on, on um, that you weren't being tough enough on, on people who had fallen, he forced them back in by force, by legal force, closed their churches, arrested people, you have to go back because there's going to be one church. Okay. And he illegally establishes Sunday as a day of rest. There's no equivalent in the Roman Empire. Uh, Constantine takes control in 324. He actually becomes the sole sovereign of the Roman Empire. He basically makes Christianity the official religion. He starts actually constructing churches, gives churches tax exemption. Uh, bishops are made high government officials. Uh, gifts of property, you know, you give them, you know. Uh, and he also actually, what he didn't do that people tried to claim he did was give the middle of Italy, the imperial states there, to the Bishop of Rome. And this is the basis of the claim of the papal states. It didn't really happen. It's a proven fraud called the donation of Constantine. But nonetheless, it was believed for centuries. Okay. That's, a, the, actually, that's actually what Constantine looked like. That's a, a contemporary uh, carving of Constantine. Then we have the first, one of the biggest events here is the first ecumenical council. Because we have a heresy, we're going to talk about the councils in detail in a separate presentation. Now, what we have is the Arian heresy. Arius said, okay, he said, uh, Jesus is the Son of God, but the Son of God is different than God. Because after all, the father you have to have a father before you have a son, so he must be superior. And so suddenly people are questioning whether Jesus is really God. You know, what, what is he exactly? And so, and this is a group called Arians. It was, it was the most, most dangerous heresy the church ever faced. And we'll talk about all the details of this in a separate thing called uh, creeds and councils. But what you need to know here is the emperor, um, oh, blast, yeah. Okay, the emperor uh, says that, you know, we, part of the, the job of the church is to, okay, the job of the church is unity. So he says, we're going to settle this. So the, the emperor calls a council saying, you're the authorities. I want all the bishops who are the authorities in the church to get together and say, what is the right doctrine? Because we're not going to have the church split into all sorts of warring groups. So he is the one. That's why the emperor says this, since the, the religion plays two roles, it plays a civic role, it's a unifying principle of the state, and it's a religious role. Since it's religious, you have to make the decision. We can't make the decision. You have to. You're the religious people, but you have to make it. It's like a parent. We can't do your homework for you, but we can make sure you do it. So the emperor is saying, you get together in a room and figure this out. Now, this is the first time they could meet all of the church because we'd have local councils, which are called synods, in, even locally. But it was, when we were under persecution, you couldn't have the people from all over the empire. And it was too costly. Since they were government officials, they actually would pay, to pay your way. They'd use the imperial post, which would actually give you a free trip all the way to Nicaea 
which is near, uh, it's on the Bosphorus, you know, which divides Europe and, and, uh, and Asia Minor. We'll give you a free trip there, and so they met. Most of them are still from the East. Most people from the West just couldn't come. It was too hard to get there. But most of them are from the East. But it was the first general or ecumenical. Ecumenical, in Greek, ecumene means the known world, meaning the people who speak Greek and Latin. It's called the ecumene. It's not the whole world. Everyone knew there were Persians and barbarians, but it was our world, the world of the civilized world. The world, civilized means cities. Key West is Latin for cities. So civilized means the world of the cities. You know, the civilized world, the words of the Greeks, they call it the ecumenes. The ecumenical council meant the entire Greco-Roman world. The close of the rule, in uh, 330, what happens is he establishes, since the center of gravity has shifted, it's like in the English-speaking world, the center of gravity shifts from England to America. It's clearly the center of the English-speaking world. And so we need a new capital city, so in the middle of where everybody lives, you know, where the heart of the world. So he moves the capital to Constantinople, the new Rome, Constantinople, named after, uh, humbly named after himself. It means Constantine's, Paulus is Greek city, so it means Constantine city. Okay. And this shows you the emblematic. Now we have two capitals. We have Rome in the west and we have Constantinople in the east. In 337, he dies. Now, notice the temporal power of the church has really taken root. They have property and inheritance, episcopal privilege, spiritual foundation of the empire. But we also have now a new tradition of secular interference in church affairs. You know, if you play both roles, the church has an interest in making sure that this is done. And so they actually, uh, they consider it their job to protect the church, not just from external threats, but from internal threats, such as heresy. I mean, they're going to involve. This is why something strange is going to happen that's going to separate the Latin East and the Greek West. In the Greek East, the empire continues for a thousand years. And therefore, in the East, we have a tradition in the Orthodox Church is what we call Caesaropapism. That's what we call it in scholarship. And that means the idea that the head of the empire, the head of the state, has a legitimate say is actually, if he's a Christian, is head of the church in a very real way. That's why the Orthodox Church always associates with the local power. That's why the church now is in bed with Putin, is because that's what you always, Putin is very, very famous about being an Orthodox Christian. He worships us, I am an Orthodox Christian. Well, he's the head of the state. So the natural thing is we look for a Christian prince. And I, Lutherans will revive this idea. Lutherans will take the Christian prince as being anointed by God, and it's his job to reform the church. You know, it be that idea. And Henry VIII will bring that notion into our Reformation as well, the special notion. But it doesn't take traction the same way with us, as we'll see. Okay. In the Rome, that won't happen because in the Rome, they're too far away. As the, as the empire gets pounded by the barbarians, we have the good luck that it makes it impossible for the emperor to have much to say in the West anymore. And that's going to, so we're not going to have that huge force trying to meddle in the church the same way. So we're going to actually have power divided with rival forces. And we have the bishops on one side are powerful because often they become the only, only man standing to take care of things. And so because of all these little principalities and things, we're not going to be subject to that kind of being under the state's thumb that you have in the East, which is one of the reasons we're sort of going to separate this way. The East is still in the empire, this kind of thing, whereas in the West, we're going to see we're going to have our own life develop very differently in the West than from the East. And with that, I'm going to have to let you go here because I have to pick up Alex in 10 minutes where we're doing an interview for a thing for ACNA. And um, so what we're going to do, because this is, I think, important things uh, for us to, to go at, it's really pretty straightforward. You look at, look at your slides, and you know, each century know these things. Some of these people are going to make some difference to you. By the way, with the Council of Nicaea, the big person there is, uh, is Athanasius. He's a, we, more, we owe to Athanasius as much as we know to any other man in church history. 
He's an amazing man. So we're going to stop here. We're not still through with the uh, fourth century by any means. We have a lot to go in the fourth century. We'll have to stop there.